Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. Before we get to today's show, can you take care of something for us? Please rate and review Health Now wherever you get your podcasts. It will help other listeners find out about us. And if you haven't already, be sure you subscribe to the show too. You wouldn't want to miss an episode, would you? Thank you. Now, on to the show. Imagine wearing a heavy backpack you never wanted and can't put down. One that affects pretty much every aspect of your daily life. It creates wear and tear on your body, and it gets in the way with other people, whether they mean for it to or not. This is one way to think about the burden of dealing with racism. From microaggressions that happen all the time to devastating events like the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and countless others to structural things like not having a good grocery store in your neighborhood and having a landfill near your community. Across the country and around the world, people have been protesting in powerful ways as part of a long-term commitment to real change. And the first step is to see the full reality as it is. Today, we're looking at one key aspect of this, the trauma of racism on health. How does this play out on a personal and societal level? What might real change look like? We're talking about it with Dr. Amani Allen. She's the Executive Associate Dean of the University of California, Berkeley School of Public Health. She's also an Associate Professor of Community Health Sciences and Epidemiology there. Her research focuses on race and socioeconomic health disparities and the measurement and study of racism as a factor in health. Dr. Allen, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. There's so much to talk about here, from the daily burdens to major events to systemic issues like access to health care and how people are treated in the doctor's office or even doctors who are also people of color and how they are perceived by their patients. But I wanted to start with George Floyd's killing, one of so many police-involved murders that we've seen over many years. Does this bring on PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, especially for people of color? Well, the way that um, I like to think about it um, is more along the lines of what in public health um, and in other disciplines such as nursing, we refer to as race-related uh, post-traumatic stress. And the reason why I'm, I'm distinguishing that from post-traumatic stress disorder because of the word disorder and because PTSD generally comes with a very specific set of criteria um, that determine whether or not it's actually PTSD, um, certainly I think that the the face of racism has changed many times over the course of history. More recently, we see uh, a, a unfortunately, a very kind of common occurrence of the killing of unarmed black, unarmed blacks in general, not just black men. And so this speaks to that word disorder um, in some interesting ways. On the one hand, disorder has traditionally been seen as something clinical, a clinical disorder. And in that way, we typically think about chemical imbalances and other kinds of disorders that really have to do with something that is kind of wrong with the individual. And I think that way we can cross a very dangerous line into victim blaming. Um, when we think about post-traumatic stress um, as opposed to stress disorder, you know, there are some similarities, including things like rumination or in the literature we call it, in the scientific literature, we call it cognitive perseveration, where we can perseverate, right? Individuals can perseverate on 
on um, experiences that they've had themselves or even on even um, based on experiences that they have witnessed or heard about from others. And so cognitive perseveration is just a fancy way of saying rumination. And so we ruminate on, um, on experiences, current and past experiences. This is a symptom of both post-traumatic stress, but also PTSD. Another common symptom is the easy recall of past experiences. So those uh, experiences, even those going back to childhood, and I can tell you that in my own work, I've talked with um, many African-American women in particular, hundreds actually, and they often describe their first experience of racial discrimination happening early in their life in the middle childhood area, some, um, somewhere between the ages of seven and nine. Wow. Um, I'm talking to these women in their 30s and in their 40s, and they recall these experiences very vividly. And in recalling these experiences now in midlife, recalling and recounting those experiences often ends up resulting in intense emotional reactions. I've talked to women recounting experiences that have happened to them when they were seven, and as 40-year-olds, they're crying and saying things like, I can still see his face. I thought about it a lot. I still think about it. And they talk about how these early life experiences have, re have really shaped um, their overall well-being, their sense of self-esteem, their feeling of belonging, um, et cetera. And so these are some of the experiences that are similar when we think about post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress disorder, easy recall of events, rumination or cognitive perseveration. One of the distinctions, however, is that with post-traumatic stress disorder, there is a criteria that there has to be the perception of immediate physical harm. And that is something that we, I would at least say in recent history, have not necessarily thought of in relation to racism. Um, but now that we actually see a lot more kind of common occurrences of the killing of black and brown men and women, then I would argue that there, there actually may be, and there hasn't been any at least research that I'm aware of more recently that has looked at the perception of immediate physical harm. But even when we look at the um, recent death from just this past weekend of um, Rayshard Brooks, you know, he ran. When we look at Freddie Gray, which was now several years ago um, in Baltimore, he ran. And you hear people asking the question, well, why did they run? Right. And so this calls into question the issue of and often when I'm talking to my white colleagues, um, certainly not all of them, but I, I get this question. Well, why did he run? Why did she? Why are we seeing these kinds of responses from African-Americans? And that's because there has been a learned response in the African-American community where police are not necessarily seen as a, as a symbol of protection, but as a symbol of terror and of harm and of undue police surveillance on black and brown bodies. And so I say this to say that I would say if you asked me this question maybe um, a couple of years ago, I would have probably said, well, there's a big difference between post-traumatic stress disorder and post-traumatic stress. But now that we're seeing a, this more common occurrence of the killing 
of, um, of, of individuals within communities of color. And I say that because it hasn't just been black men and women, but certainly more frequently we see it occurring among black men and women. And this issue of this learned response to immediately run may really signal the perception of immediate physical threat or harm. That said, yeah. I would still avoid the use of the term disorder. I would be careful or cautious in how it's used so that it's not seen as something that's wrong with the individual, but rather a social response. That's very interesting that that even in the in the in recent years that you can notice that sort of a change in how people respond uh, and and the use of the word disorder. And you know these images that we've seen are really everywhere. You know, if you're on social media, if you're watching the news, if you're consuming any media at all. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like that's something that's, that's certainly different in the last, you know, decade or so, since everyone has a camera in their pocket, these images are reaching more people. But can seeing those types of images be traumatizing to people? And, and how might someone manage their exposure to videos of these crimes happening? You know, some people, I can see how some people say it's important to see what's happening and see it with your own eyes, but then others may feel like it's too traumatic to really view in full. Yes, that's, um, that's a great point you're bringing up. Um, and I think that, I think there are lots of individual differences in, in what may be salutary for some, but harmful for others. And so it's hard to say that there is one answer or one piece of advice that we could give about how people should be managing these experiences. I will say to get to the first part of your question about can viewing these kinds of incidents be traumatic for folks? And um, we certainly know from the scientific evidence that and, and we call it, we use different terms in the, in the public health and other um, health-related literature to talk about this. Some, um, in some literature, we call it vicarious racism. So not necessarily, not just the racist, racist experiences that happen to an individual directly, but experiences that they have because they view something in the media or because they hear stories from others. And this is something that you also commonly hear African-Americans talk about how um, their kind of experience with what we call racial socialization and the way that they are socialized from childhood to be aware of the of the experience of and the possibility of them experiencing racism as they go through life, right? So this kind of, we call it preparation for racial bias. And so this is something that a lot of African-American families, parents talk about feeling an obligation to prep, prepare their children for the possibility of being treated differently because of their right, race. And again, we call that preparation for bias, one element of racial socialization that often occurs starting in, um, in childhood and continues over the course of life. And so starting from early in life, there's this racial preparation, but then as one, as one starts to accumulate their own experiences, um, you know, there's kind of an awareness of what this really means. But even when people don't have their own experiences, there is um, there is awareness of these experiences because of what you see in the media, um, because of what you hear from others, et cetera. And part of that preparation for bias is kind of hearing the stories from one's parents, from one's grandparents, et cetera. 
about the experiences that they've had over the course of their own lives. And this is not lost on, on children as they grow up, on young adults as they start to have their own experiences, um, or even in adolescence, right? Those experiences, again, they tend to initially occur early in life. And so we have heard reports about kind of this vicarious racism or what we call secondhand racism having tremendous impacts on an individual, whether or not they were the direct victim of race of a racism incident or not. For individuals for whom their racial identity is a salient part of their, of their overall personal identity, we can actually see kind of a, um, what we call a sense of hypervigilance or heightened awareness about these experiences. And it has certainly been associated with the kinds of trauma, traumatic symptoms that we've been talking about before. So in terms of how people can manage this, you know, one thing I would say is that for some people, it may be traumatizing. For others, it may be motivating. It may be more of a call to action. Certainly, um, racial discrimination has been associated with multiple forms of or, or multiple adverse health outcomes, both mental and physical health outcomes. And so whether it's quote unquote traumatizing or not, we know that it has negative health effects. It's associated with, with anger and hostility, with um, de depressive symptomatology. And we also know that it's associated with high degrees of psychological distress. And given the connection between the mind and the body, the perception of threat in the experience of distress can translate very easily into adverse physical health outcomes. Because once a stressor is perceived as threatening by an individual, and we know that racial discrimination tends to be perceived by African Americans as threatening, as a threatening social experience, that that is associated with the cascade of biological events that happen in the body that over time can become very toxic, compromising our body's ability to regulate key biological systems. And so it can actually age or weather our bodies, um, kind of creating this wear and tear um, in the body. And so we've seen associations between repeated experiences of racial discrimination. And again, it's, you know, regardless of whether it's something that you've experienced directly or something that you've viewed or seen. And, you know, I think that there is definitely evidence that uh, that vicarious racism or again what we can what we sometimes call uh, secondhand racism can also have these traumatic um, can have traumatic effects but again even if it's not traumatic for an individual can certainly impact their mental and physical health it sounds like it may be important for people to just kind of notice how viewing these things makes them feel and if it's really kind of becoming a problem maybe think about ways that you can maybe take a step back a little bit from from you know your your online experience with these kinds of images and we we certainly hear um, hear examples of that that you know anecdotally we know that uh, that African Americans are reporting kind of a media fatigue right fatigue at the incessant um, not just media attention, I mean, I think the media attention is important, but the kind of incessant fatigue, especially um, given the context we're in now with shelter in place, and so people are exposed to the media more than they were. That's um, true. Kind of 
pre-pandemic. And so it, it, there's a captive audience. And so people have definitely um, anecdotally reported, African-Americans and other communities of color have reported, um, and it's not to say that, um, that whites are not also experiencing this kind of fatigue from the me media, but specifically around these kind of recent racial incidents, racism incidents that there's this reporting of um, kind of media fatigue, um, racial fatigue, racism fatigue. But I think one thing that's important to consider is when we think about stress, because that's what we're talking about, racism manifests in lots of different ways. Um, one of the ways it manifests is as a stressor, a stress experience in the lives of African-Americans. And when we think about the stress response process, one important element of that process is coping. And so this gets back to your question about, you know, how should people be managing their exposure to these incidents, especially the incidents that they're seeing on the news, et cetera. And so coping is a very individual response. Certainly we see um, group patterns and coping responses. So for example, among African-American women, we, um, there are, there's a high frequency of reports of what we call superwoman schema or being the strong black woman. Mm -hmm. and, and what does that mean, right? When we think about that, it has to do with um, exactly what we're talking about, not only experiencing the distress associated with your own experiences, but also taking on the stress of others who are in your um, close social network. And so African-American women, for example, talk about experiencing distress based on the experiences and their concerns about the potential experiences of their Black sons, of their Black partners and other family members. Um, and so that's just one example of a form of coping um, that's commonly reported by African-American women to say that there are group patterns in coping responses. However, there are lots of individual um, differences in coping as well. And so I think at this time, people really have to think about how they are receiving and experiencing what they're viewing in mm -hmm. today's news related to these killings and adjust themselves accordingly. When we think about the appraisal of threat, coping is very important from the perspective that perception of one's ability to effectively cope with or manage the stressor or the, the perceived stressor or the perceived threat can actually dampen the perception of threat, right? So it can kind of attenuate the perception of threat. However, perception that one does not have the ability to manage or cope with those experiences can actually exacerbate or heighten the threat experience, which would then lead to a more adverse health outcome. I see. And so, so, so for those who, who kind of feel like they have the individual capacity to effectively cope with and manage what they're seeing, then, you know, each of us has to, I think, make an individual determination about our ability to effectively cope. And that can vary for many people, you know, being part of protests and being part of this kind of very active response may for some people be a very effective coping and management process. Right. I've heard a lot of people say that it feels very cathartic to participate in protests or even share a lot of stuff online. So it just, I'm sure it really depends on, on the person and how they're, how they cope, uh, as you say, mm -hmm. with these kinds of things. I wanted to talk about 
other things that people of color have long faced over decades, centuries, apart from major events like the ones that we've been all very aware of in the past few weeks. And these can range from, you know, strangers acting fearfully around them, you know, profiling them. You know, you hear a lot about store security guards following people in stores, thinking they're, you know, a, a shoplifting suspect. You know, there's discrimination in blatant and subtle forms um, or living with fear that some interaction with police could go horribly wrong. Um, and you've alluded to this a little bit already, but I wanted to talk specifically about the health impacts, um, physical and mental, that this stress constantly, having the stress constantly with you can cause. Yes, that's a, that's a really important question in terms of thinking about how does stress actually get into the body um, to impact our health. And I think it's important to start out by saying that stress is not inherently good or bad. Stress is really simply, we can think about stress as this kind of tension or pressure, external tension or pressure that, that forces some kind of adaptation or change. And so when we think about that, you know, there, at least in the public health literature, we think about two different forms of stress. One is what we call distress, D-I stress, and that's what we think about as the negative form of stress or what's perceived as distressing. And there's a, a good form of stress we think of, or we call that eustress. And so perceiving an external demand or stimulus as motivating or challenging kind of falls into the bucket of good stress. You know, it results in a different physiologic response. And so again, importantly, stress is not necessarily good or bad, but when we think about the experience of racism as a chronic stressor, and especially now with, with shelter in place and all of the media attention towards it, which is actually a good thing because it raises national awareness about experiences that can be invisible to many um, because they are isolated in certain groups, right? right. Um, but when we think about kind of this kind of experience of chronic stress that we're seeing now from, from constant media attention, again, whether it's happening to ourselves or not, we, we tend to think about racism from the perspective of distress because we know that racism is commonly reported, at least by African-Americans, as, um, as a threat and as a negative stressor. And when, you know, stress is, stress is actually something that's good for us in general, when we go back to not thinking about stress as being good or bad, but our bodies have a natural way of adapting to daily stressors um, that we face. Uh, we, our bodies kind of activate in order to address those immediate stressors and then our bodies recover. Um, so kind of upon the presentation of an environmental demand, our bodies have a natural way of adapting to stressors in the face of immediate stress. And this kind of adaptation is characterized by the upregulation of a variety of stress and other hormones in the body that allow us to operate optimally in the presence of these stressors. So we commonly think of that as our fight or flight response when people talk about being stressed, you know, we commonly hear people say, my adrenaline is pumping. Well, they're talking mm -hmm. about epinephrine. They're talking about catecholamines in their bodies that are being upregulated in order to allow them to operate 
um, optimally in the presence of these stressors. But the idea is that over a period of time, either once those stressors are removed or once we become accustomed to the presence of those stressors, we kind of come back down to resting state and physiologic balance is restored. So we activate and we recover. And I was listening to one of your previous podcasts with um, the Surgeon General Jerome Adams, and he brought up this concept of allostasis. And what I'm talking about in terms of this activation and recovery process, that's what allostasis is. We define allostasis as maintaining stability through change. So we change physiologically in order to maintain stability in the presence of these kind of um, heightened environmental demands. And so this is helpful for us. Um, we, you know, we see things like our, our cortisol, which is a very common stress hormone in our body as part of our body's primary stress response process. Um, cortisol, we also see the upregulation of a variety of catecholamines, as I mentioned, epinephrine and norepinephrine. Um, both of upregulation of both of those ends up um, increasing the um, circulation of pro-inflammatory cytokines in our body, such as interleukin-6, um, C-reactive protein, which is an acute phase protein, but both related to the inflammatory response in the body. And all of this happens to allow our bodies to, to fend off or to ward off what could be immediate or acute stressors in our environments. However, we're not meant to experience these kinds of physiologic changes over long periods of time. Right. So while, I was going to say there's no time for, it sounds, you know, if you're living with daily racism, there's no escape from it. There's no time to recover. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what's key is that, you know, we, you know, we, the short term kind of elevation, secretion and circulation of these hormones and proteins in our bodies are helpful, but over long periods of time can become very toxic to our bodies, resulting in that wear and tear that I was talking about earlier. And so that we transition from allostasis which is a very normal part of day-to-day -day functioning, to what we call allostatic load, which has to do with that wear and tear, the weathering on the body, or that um, we, have, we have measures that we use in, um, in scientific research that can actually capture biological aging. Allostatic load is you know, one of those measures. You know, there are other measures like telomere length that capture this kind of premature biological aging, which we know, by the way, is much higher in African-Americans than it is um, for other groups. And so the argument is that it, this kind of higher degree of premature aging among African-Americans um, African is at least in part associated with the experience of chronic stress, specifically associated with racial discrimination and racism in this country. So what happens when we experience these long-term physiologic changes that we kind of call physiologic dysregulation that ends up leaving us more susceptible to a variety of poor health outcomes? So high levels of inflammation in the body in general is not good, right? It's one thing if we experience it one day and then we come back down to resting state, but in general, having a heightened level of inflammation in the body um, is, is health damaging. And so one of the things that we've seen, whether it's, you know, 
telomere length, allostatic load, we know that both of these as measures of physiologic dysregulation have been associated with a number of chronic diseases, including cardiovascular disease, stroke, diabetes, and other forms of metabolic disorders. We also know that, um, that this kind of premature biological aging or these bio long-term biological changes that occur in the body from repetitive experiences of stress or chronic experiences of stress have also been associated with premature mortality. So chronic disease um, certainly, but then also mortality. And one of the things that we've seen is kind of higher levels of this biological aging happening earlier in life among African Americans than it um, than among whites, for example. So there's there was one study that was conducted in um, 2010 by Arlene Geronimus, who is a professor at the University of Michigan, and she looked at uh, telomere length. Again, this it telomeres, um, that's a measure of cellular aging in the body. And she found that on average, black women are aging approximately seven and a half years more premature compared to their white counterparts. Wow, my goodness, that is shocking. And so it, it definitely has implications for racial disparities and a variety of chronic diseases. As I mentioned, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and other chronic diseases is associated with mortality. It's also been associated with birth outcomes, such as infant mortality, low birth weight, and preterm delivery. We've talked often at WebMD and, and see headlines about how you know rates of maternal mortality, infant mortality, and, and other types of chronic diseases are consistently higher for people of color than they are for, for white people. When we look at these very kind of persistent and pervasive racial disparities in health, and, and what I mean by pervasive is that we don't just see racial disparities where African-Americans are doing worse than not only whites, but often other racial groups as well. Um, we don't just see that for one or two health outcomes. This tends to be the pattern across a number of different mental and physical health outcomes. And so one of the questions, you know, that that people are asking is, well, what is accounting for these very pervasive, long-standing racial health disparities? And so we've looked at, you know, access to health care. So just having access to health insurance, does that change it? What about um, people are, you know, still talk about genetic differences, although we know that that's not the answer for, the, for a variety of reasons. Um, numerous studies looking at that. And then another kind of what, what I would consider to be a usual suspect is socioeconomic um, factors such as educational attainment, employment status, um, income level. And importantly, we have seen study after study conducted where the findings show that although, for example, socioeconomic status may slightly attenuate racial health disparities, there remains a very significant um, racial gap in terms of when we look at health outcomes that are unaccounted for by, by a number of these factors, right? So, so health system factors, socioeconomic status, um, et cetera. And, and there are other reasons why we know that uh, a genetic explanation is inadequate for explaining racial health disparities. Um, you've probably um, 
kind of heard or are aware of the statistic that there is more genetic variation within groups than between groups. Mm-hmm. And so all of these have, have left scientific investigators wondering, well, if it's not these these other factors, which we know are very powerful predictors of population health, then what could it be? And, you know, that's where um, experiences such as stress start to enter the picture when we try to start thinking about what are, what is the, what is the actual lived and social experience of race in America? And why do we see these very drastic differences between Blacks and mostly all other groups? when we look across a broad array of health outcomes. And so one obvious consideration, given the prominent role of racial discrimination in the lives of African-Americans, one obvious consideration is the experience of racial discrimination and racism over the life course. And this research showing that it can affect you down to a very basic cellular level, no matter your socioeconomic status or, or where you live, that is uh, really shocking. The research on this sounds very fascinating. I'm curious about how far back does it go? This research has actually been going on for quite some time. I definitely think that attention to this area has, has increased over time, but even going back to at least the late 19th century, one prominent study that was um, done then was uh, conducted by W.E.B. Du Bois, his work, um, which was published in um, his book, The Philadelphia Negro. And this was a, a sociological study of African Americans in Philadelphia trying to really identify what are some of the challenges that African Americans are experiencing that have to do with their, their lot in life. And that includes their, their health and well-being. And one of the major findings from this study was that it has to do with the perception of African Americans in society and the political, social, and economic exclusion of African Americans from civic life. And so even as early as the late 19th century, we certainly saw not only claims, but this was um, a scientific, a systematic study um, that documented um, lots of um, experiences associated with what was called at the time Negro life in America. Um, and so looking at uh, issues such as housing um, and economic differences, um, the exclusion of businesses from African-American neighborhoods, et cetera. Um, and even in more recent history, um, there were studies, Alfred Yankauer, for example, um, in 1950, conducted a study um, looking at racial residential segregation and risk for infant mortality and found that African-Americans living in racially segregated neighborhoods had a higher likelihood of infant mortality compared to their white counterparts. And so I think that the research in this area is not necessarily new, although I would say the pace of the research in this area has certainly increased over time. But historically, we know that there have been inquiries into the kind of, again, the lived and social experience of African Americans in this country. I want to shift a little bit and talk about healthcare, uh, which you alluded to a a little bit ago. Um, Obviously, access to healthcare is the start of addressing um, any health problem that you, that, that, people um, might be living with, 
where does that stand now um, for for people of color in terms of um, being able to access affordable health care? In terms of access to health care, we know that uh, the number of persons who are insured for all groups has improved um, has improved over time. Um, we know that the ACA, the um, Affordable Care Act, made a big difference in having access to health insurance. Um, however, I would point to um, a few things. One, um, I want to mention two prior Institute of Medicine reports um, that were that came out in the early 2000s. One was called Unequal Treatment and the other was called Crossing the Quality Chasm. And in both of these reports, um, evidence was presented from, from numerous studies that demonstrated bias in the provision of healthcare once in the healthcare system. So I wanna make a distinction between having health insurance which is the ability to just access healthcare services versus the provision of unbiased and quality healthcare services. And so what we know from numerous studies at this point is that even once in the healthcare system, that there is significant um, bias that impacts the ability of African Americans and other groups, um, including Latinos and Native Americans, to receive quality healthcare. So for example, we know that African Americans um, and African American women in particular, but African Americans presenting with the same symptoms um, that are the, um, the same age as their white counterparts are less likely to be referred for specialty services, um, diagnostic and therapeutic services for cardiovascular disease compared to their white counterparts. We've seen it in relation to chronic kidney disease. We've seen it in relation to a number of health outcomes. So again, access, simple access to care, and it doesn't mean that, that health insurance is not important. It's absolutely important. Um, but once we're in the healthcare system, there's um, another animal that we have to deal with, which is making sure that all groups, regardless of their race or ethnicity, have equal access to quality um, and unbiased healthcare. Um, the other point that I would like to make is that our healthcare system in the United States should be more preventive than it is, which we call um, preventive kind of um, healthcare. We call that pri primary, right. um, as opposed to secondary or tertiary, right? So when we think about these long-standing racial health inequities, this actually happens outside of the healthcare system, mm -hmm. right? Healthcare services can help um, from kind of a secondary and tertiary perspective. Healthcare services kind of help once we're sick, and I'm saying that and I'm, I'm saying that because although we would like to think about our, our healthcare system as primary prevention, right? Addressing needs before people get sick, we know that in a lot of ways, our healthcare system is reactionary. Um, right, you're developing, you're developing problems long before you ever see a doctor about exactly. them. And, and by that time, it's too late to, to prevent something that maybe you could have held off a little bit more easily exactly. before. Mm -hmm. Exactly, health is produced 
in people's everyday lives and people's everyday experiences, right? And this is not to blame the victim. So I don't want to suggest that, you know, people aren't going to the doctor soon enough or early enough. I'm just saying that in addition to accessing the health system, where we actually see health showing up is in our day-to-day social activities. And that there is a a large social component of the production of health that we have to think about that has nothing to do with the healthcare system. What do we know about how people of color feel treated when they go to a doctor's appointment, Um, which I would imagine affects whether or not you would be more likely to go back? Right. That's a that's an excellent question. Um, in some of my own research, we've looked at this, and there's been a lot of research looking at discrimination within the healthcare system, which is unfortunately an experience that's commonly reported by African Americans. Um, certainly not all African Americans, but certainly um, when we think about the reporting of experiences of racial discrimination, one of the common institutional settings in which racial discrimination is reported is within the medical care system. Um, And that can look lots of different ways. Um, There's a strong body of research looking at doctor-patient race concordance and uh, patients of color, not just African-Americans, but um, patients who come from communities of color report more satisfaction with care and higher healthcare utilization rates when they are in, um, when they are receiving care from a race concordant provider. We someone also- who's Someone who, who looks like them or who has maybe some of the same life experiences. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And, and, and thinking about why, you know, why is there higher satisfaction with care and higher utilization of services? Um, patients have reported their awareness of provider bias in the healthcare encounter um, when they are in discordant pairs with their provider. So having a provider of a different racial group. And this is not universal, but it is something that's commonly reported. And one aspect of the patient-provider relationship that is, um, that kind of is reported commonly is physician decision-making style. Racial groups that have been minoritized in this country commonly report not feeling like they are part of the decision-making process when they are in a situation with a provider that is from a different racial or ethnic group, that they're not brought in as partners in the decision-making process, and that they, um, that they kind of feel devalued and invisible in that process. One of my colleagues, Tina Sachs, who's in the School of Social Welfare at, uh, at UC Berkeley, recently published a book called Invisible Visits, which is, which is all about African-American middle-class, African-American women's experiences and going to the doctor. And they talk, she talks a lot about this idea of invisible labor, the invisible labor or this performance that African-American women describe having to put on when they go to the doctor so that they um, are viewed in a certain way, so that they are respected, so that they're valued, so that they are not invisible in those healthcare encounters. That's a lot of work when you're just trying to go to the doctor to because you don't feel like something's right with your health. My goodness. 
Absolutely. And so this kind of this kind of performative aspect, um, you know, I would argue in 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 some circles, it's called code switching, mm-hmm. um, that this is not just something we see in the healthcare system. We see it in work environments and in other institutional settings. And but the point here is that there is this awareness that one has to go through this actual performance or this additional labor in order to be viewed a certain way so that they can avoid the experience of racial discrimination. And so that's also going back to this idea of stress is that that's an additional burden, right, that certain groups relative to other groups are bearing and going into these different encounters or settings where they feel like they have to perform in order to be seen, um, in order to be seen. I was gonna say in order to be seen as equal, but what African-American women in Invisible Visits are saying is just in order to be seen and heard. Right, Right. and have their experiences um, valued. Mm -hmm. How about on the other side of the table, um, how about doctors uh, of people who are people of color who are doctors. Have you done any research or heard of any research um, about how they feel they are perceived by their patients who are of uh, a different, different race? I have not. um, I have not done any of that research myself, nor have I seen any uh, studies on this topic. However, you know, I I have friends who are physicians, um, black women in particular, and anecdotally can share that I commonly hear complaints about um, concerns related to their intelligence and their ability to provide quality care. I'm curious to get your thoughts on uh, the coronavirus pandemic and how it, um, all the evidence so far is that it appears to be, have a a worse impact on people of color, especially uh, Black Americans than other races. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that something that you've been thinking about as you hear daily news of of the pandemic? Absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, as the reports, and, and it's thank goodness to those early cities and states that started reporting, collecting and reporting data on race that really raised awareness about the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 in communities of color. Um, And I think that there are, there's certainly some evidence out there that suggests that there are some systemic challenges that may have to do with why we're seeing these disproportionate rates. And there are all kinds of studies that are going on now, the results of which um, are not necessarily out yet. But we know, for example, that in certain communities, there are higher number of cases among African-Americans, and in particular in neighborhoods with a high proportion of African-Americans or a high proportion of low-income communities of color. And Unfortunately, we have seen in some of those cities that the testing rate is lower in those very neighborhoods where we have a higher number of cases. And so it does kind of beg the question, whereas on the other hand, in Chicago is one good example, but it's happening in other places, um, whereas we see a lower number of cases in, say, predominantly white, higher income areas, but a much higher testing rate. And so why are we seeing that, right? Um, There's a concern about the lack of inequitable distribution of resources that may be impacting, may have a result um, and an impact on what we're seeing. And so some of the things that I think about are 
are African Americans, and we know that African Americans, and in particular African American women, um, nationally make up the majority of the essential workforce. And so, you know, there is a higher risk of exposure because of being part of that essential workforce. But then we also know that testing was not available early on to these essential workers, nor was adequate um, PPE. And so one of the concerns um, or questions rather that I had, that I've been thinking about is the degree to which testing has been delayed in some of these communities so that once we actually do find out that there are positive cases um, among certain groups and in particular among black americans at that point do black americans have more severe disease right so we're talking about late testing potentially so late diagnosis delayed treatment more severe disease and more severe um, potentially more severe outcomes so i don't think we have the data on that yet but those are certainly um, some concerns that I've been thinking about. The other thing is that, you know, a lot of the early reports have been talking about how Blacks have, Black Americans have a higher rate of a lot of the pre-existing conditions that we know place, um, place people at greater risk of an adverse outcome in relation to infection with COVID-19. So um, a higher rate of hospitalization and a higher rate of mortality if you have um, certain pre-existing conditions. Um, which is important, but there's also re there are also recent studies coming out that demonstrate that even once you account for pre-existing conditions, that Blacks have almost threefold, um, a three times higher risk of um, COVID-19 hospitalization compared to whites. I was so seeing, I saw a, a study of a news of a study on that this morning, in fact, which I, you know, thought was timely uh, since you and I were going to be speaking today. And a researcher was talking about how um, he would he's interested in seeing the effects of things like chronic stress that stems mm -hmm. from social factors like race, um, mm -hmm. which you know makes a lot of sense when based on what we were talking about a little bit ago. Mm -hmm. We have to think about the high degree of medical mistrust in the African American community, and that's a problem, right? When when there's a certain community that feels mistrustful of the healthcare system, and understandably so because of past breaches of that trust, don't even feel comfortable going to the doctor right. when they have healthcare needs. And this is kind of pre-pandemic, but one can imagine how this can exacerbate challenges in the pandemic. If when someone is sick, they don't feel comfortable going to the doctor because they don't feel like they're going to be treated right. We've heard lots of stories about um, Blacks being turned away from getting COVID-19 tested um, mm -hmm. at much higher rates compared to other groups. And so this just kind of builds that mistrust in the African-American community. And so there's another question about to what extent are people also just staying away because they don't feel like they're going to be treated right. They're not going to get the needed, um, the needed test or just the needed health care. Right. Why would you turn someone away to get tested for coronavirus? That is shocking. Right. I mean, they're like, you have the flu, go home. You'll be better in a few yeah, days. And four days later, the person is dead. Right. And we've seen lots of reports of this just to find out that once they died, it became apparent that they were positive for COVID-19. I wanted to ask my final question, which is just how are you doing um, during such a, a, a fraught time, an anxious time? What is helping you get through? 
That's a good question. How am I doing? I have, I have good days and, um, and not good days. And I, you know, the, the combination of the pandemic, and I, I can tell you as, as a scientist, as a, um, someone who, um, studies and has been studying racial health disparities um, for a very long time, that what we're seeing, the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on African-Americans is not at all surprising to me. So this is not new, what we're seeing, but it's just concerning that we have seen this exact same pattern in many previous um, uh, epidemics and pandemics, right? We saw the same pattern with H1N1. We saw the same thing with Hurricane Katrina. Um, We're seeing it play itself out now with climate change. So, you know, when we see these kind of major national disasters or um, epidemics, pandemics, we see them following the same patterns as we do when we look at, you know, racial disparities in chronic disease or racial disparities in mortality. And, and so the concern and what's disheartening is that we haven't learned our lesson yet. Right. Right. That we have not, that we have seen this disproportionate impact, regardless of what the health challenge is. We've seen the same pattern, one epidemic after another epidemic, one catastrophe after another catastrophe catastrophe. And so the question is, will we see it again when COVID-19 is old news and we have um, effective uh, vaccines for this? But something else is going to happen. It always does. And are we going to see the same pattern? Are we going to take the lesson and finally um, do something about it? Um, You know, when we look at Katrina, when we look at climate change, when we look at COVID-19, we can certainly point to a lot of systemic challenges that have made it more difficult for African Americans, for Black Americans, um, and frankly, for for other groups as well, um, for Indigenous Americans, for um, Latinx Americans, for low-income Americans, to have the same opportunity to thrive. Right. Um, Do you think that the... uh current um, heightened awareness of, uh, you know, racial discrimination or, you know, the focus on, on these, um, you know, police killings and the, the different treatment that people of color often receive. Do you think that that will end up having an effect or a, a recognition of how those kinds of daily stresses um, that people experience impact their health? I, I certainly hope it does. Um, And I think that we are at an unprecedented moment, not because um, what we're seeing is new, unfortunately, but perhaps because we are in the midst of shelter in place while, um, you know, while we're seeing a lot of this mistreatment, the killing of Blacks take place, that there's more national awareness and national attention about what's happening. And I also think that seeing what's happening with COVID-19 and the disproportionate impact on Black, Indigenous, and other communities of color, um, coupled with what we're seeing around police use of force, excessive use of force against Black and brown bodies in this country, that seeing those two experiences alongside one another, my hope is that it really is shining a light 
on the systemic challenges that we're facing as a country. You know, the majority of Americans in this country um, do acknowledge that being Black hurts one's ability to get ahead in life. But the majority of white Americans still believe that that is not due to racial discrimination, but rather um, there's recent data coming out of the Pew Research Center that show that the majority of whites believe that, um, that those problems are due to things like family instability, right? So classic blaming the victim. Um, and that's problematic. And then even among those that do believe that racial discrimination is a problem, 70% um, of whites, again, recently report that they believe that these problems are related to individual levels of racial discrimination. So individual instances, as opposed to racial discrimination being built into the laws and policies, practices and norms of this country. And so I do think that we still are um, climbing uphill, but my hope is that we are at an unprecedented moment where the motivation will be sustained, where the action will be sustained, so that we can really move the needle in, um, in raising awareness and hopefully actually making real systemic change on some of these issues. And I think that although, you know, we've seen, unfortunately, some of these killings and um, these disparities in previous um, epidemics, over time, that something about right now does seem to be different. Um, I don't want to be pessimistic, but um, I'll say I'm cautiously optimistic um, and, and hope that this moment doesn't yet pass us by again without us making real change in this country, because I do think we have an opportunity right now. I'm also uh, cautiously optimistic right along with you. So um, hopefully we'll be able to see some of those changes uh, come to pass. Uh, Dr. Amani Allen, thank you so much for talking with us today. We really appreciate um, all of your insights on this hugely important topic. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Carrie. Thanks for joining us today. Hope you can tune in next time. Until then, keep up with WebMD on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Bye for now.